0: And as you read Abram's entire story in the book of Genesis, Abram is as unpredictable as the wind. But the one constant in Abram's life and the one constant in this story this morning, the one constant for us, is God. God never wavers. God is never caught off guard by the latest turn of events. And God never in this story backs away from the promises that He has made to Abram. So this morning we're going to contrast Abram's frailty with God's faithfulness. And it really makes for an intriguing story. And because it's such a good story this morning, I struggle with how to preach it to you. Because I want to let the story unfold itself as a story, as though you were listening to a storyteller this morning. So that uh, as much as possible, the twists and turns of this story would almost catch you by surprise. And so that you would be eager to find out what's going to happen next. And so that as the story winds toward its conclusion, that you would begin to wonder almost if God was finally just going to give up on Abraham or Abram and find someone else to do his job. So I thought it was best this morning just to, to read through the story in order and to let it unfold piece by piece like it would if it was a movie or a story that we were listening to by a storyteller, but I'm also torn because as I studied it this week, I I began to see five very important spiritual truths sort of rise to the top. Five things that must be said about God and about us from this story. And so for me, it, it kind of uh, was a difficulty because I said, "Oh, here's five points. This would make a wonderful five-point sermon outline." And so I was tempted this week just to preach those five points, pulling them from various scenes in Abram's soap opera, but I decided not to do that. I decided what I would do was to try to give you these five spiritual truths up front, which I'll do in just a moment, and then do my best to tell this story so that those truths begin to be filled up with meaning as the camera follows Abram around in chapters 15 and 16. So let me give you five spiritual truths that I hope you'll see begin to come to life in the story of Abram. And begin to come to life in your own life as you apply what you hear. Number one, right standing with God is not earned by good behavior, but it is granted on the basis of faith. Right standing with God is not earned by good behavior, but it is granted as a gift on the basis of faith. Number two truth from this story even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. And that's straight out of Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.13. Even when we are faithless, God remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. Number three, God is compassionate. He remembers our frame and He knows that we are but dust. And that's out of Psalm three fourteen. God is compassionate. He remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Number four, it is a terrible sin to fancy yourself wiser than God. It's a terrible sin when we begin to fancy or think of ourselves wiser than God. And number five, though God is compassionate and forgiving, sin still carries stiff earthly consequences though God is compassionate and forgiving our sin still carries with it stiff earthly consequences so let's pause to pray and then let's hopefully observe these five timeless truths unfold beginning with chapter 15 verse 1 father I pray that you would show us today these truths help us to To see and to grasp clearly that our right standing with You is not based on works of righteousness that we've done, but on Your mercy and on the basis of us trusting in Your Son, Jesus. Help us to see from this story today, Lord, that even when we are are faithless, even when we fail, You remain faithful. Because you will never, ever deny yourself. We may deny you, but you will not deny the promises you've made to us. Help us understand that today. Help us grasp it. God, help us see how compassionate you are with us. With sinners, with people who are beaten down and struggling. Help us see your compassion today. Help us see, Lord, how foolish it is when we begin to begin to ignore your word. And come up with our own plans. And Lord, help us see today that though You are compassionate and though You are forgiving and though, uh, if we are in Christ, our sins will not keep us from heaven, many times they will come with very difficult, difficult repercussions on earth. Let us be warned today. God, in all these things, point us to Your Son that He would be glorified in this story, and in this hour together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Let's begin reading in
0: chapter 15, and we'll just read right now the first six verses. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, "'Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great.'" Abram said, "O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he, meaning Abraham, Abram, then he believed in the Lord. And he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now in chapter 14, Abram had just won a great military victory. Rescuing his nephew Lot, defeating five kings who were, at least in human terms, much more powerful than he was. But though he had won this great victory in chapter 14, he was afraid. Maybe he was afraid that these kings whose armies he had just defeated would redouble their efforts and come back to hunt him down. Or maybe he was afraid because it seemed like none of the promises God had made to him when he left his homeland were being fulfilled. Maybe he was afraid simply because he had seen the Lord in this vision and no one can see God and live. We don't know all the reasons Abram was afraid, but we do know for one reason or another, mighty man, though he had just been in chapter 14, now we find him worried and fearful. But in the midst of Abram's worry, in the midst of his doubt, in the midst of all the uncertainties that were facing him, comes the steady and reassuring voice of the Lord. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. For some translations say, I am your very great reward. But I want you to notice mainly there that God didn't come to Abram with a, a series of recriminations. He might have. We might come to our children like that. Don't you trust me? Don't you know that I'm going to take care of you? What's wrong with you, Abram? Get up off the ground and act like a man. God didn't come to him that way, did He? God came to him with tenderness And with compassion, with a promise of protection, I'm a shield to you, and with a promise of blessing, your reward shall be very great. Isn't God amazing? I wonder if any of you have ever been in a situation where you were fearful and uncertain, and you heard the voice of the Lord coming to you through His Word like that. You opened up your reading for the day, and God just spoke certainty to you in the midst of your fear and doubt. If you have, just think back on that for a moment and remember the Lord's compassion. Remember His goodness to you in those times. And remember too that maybe when God spoke to you like that, you were like Abram. Maybe though God spoke peace to you and certainty to you and protection and blessing to you, you still responded doubtfully like Abram did in verses 2 and 3. Abram said, if I can paraphrase, How can my reward be great, God? How can you say my reward is great when you promise to multiply my family and make me a great nation and I don't even have one single child? What do you mean? Am I going to have to leave all my wealth to my household servant? Is my name and all that I've accumulated for these many years going to be left to my butler? What do you mean, God, my reward is great? I know you promise a reward... I just don't have the faith to see it, God. you ever prayed like that? I have. I find myself a lot of times in the shoes of Abraham, not having the faith to see what God is promising. But amazingly, again, despite Abram's questioning, God still spoke to him gently and compassionately, saying something like this, Abram, you don't have the faith to see? Come outside with me. I'll help you see. Look at the stars. Count them. Can you count them, Abram? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's how many descendants you're going to have. I'm going to come through for you. I'll help you see. I will hold on to your hand. I will lead you to believe my promise. And again, I'd say, isn't God merciful? He takes this man who is afraid and he promises him protection. He takes this man who couldn't see and brings him outside to help him see He takes a man who is doubting and He gives him reassurance. Everything that Abram needed in this passage, God gave to him patiently. God is always patient with those whom He loves. He is kind and He is compassionate. And when our well runs dry, God doesn't come to us with a sledgehammer to tear it down and say, I'll find someone else to trust Me. God comes when our well is dry with bucketfuls of fresh water to fill it up again. To restore our faith. That's exactly what happened with Abram. When we began the story, he was frightened and faithless. And then after meeting God in his own little personal desert, verse 6 says, He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to Him as righteousness. What a change God worked between verses 1 and 6. Because He was compassionate and He was gracious to Abram. And He has been to us as well. Verse six is really important for another reason. Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteous. Was Abraham a right, or Abram a righteous man? According to verse six, he was. Abram was a righteous man, but the question is, where did his righteousness come from? Was it innate? Was he innately good and innately faithful and innately trusting of the Lord? No, he wasn't. We see right here that he wasn't. And if you believe that Abram was really a good guy, you're going to be heartbroken when we get to chapter 16. Because in chapter 16, we learn just how pathetic of a sinner Abram really was. He was capable of some of the darkest of deeds. So Abram, like us, was a sinner. He wasn't righteous on his own. Abram, like us, owed God a fantastic sin debt. And Abram, like us, could never have paid that sin debt back by piling up more and more good works. In fact, as we read through the story, we're going to find that he's getting himself deeper and deeper into debt. Deeper and deeper into trouble. But that right standing with God, that righteousness that verse 6 says Abram possessed, was there. He was righteous. How can that work? Well, it works like this. Abram's standing with God wasn't earned, but verse 6 says it was reckoned to him or credited to him as a gift. The word reckoned or credited is just like when someone credits something to your account. It's not your paycheck from your job. It's someone putting money in your bank account that you didn't earn as a gift. It's a credit. And that's what verse 6 says about Abram. It doesn't say he was righteous on his own. It says God credited righteousness into his account. He didn't earn a paycheck and deposit it. God earned it for him and gave it to him as a gift. God said, I will declare you righteous. I will treat you as though you were better than you were as a gift. And all Abram needed to do was believe. All he needed to do was trust God for it. And that's the way it works for us all, isn't it? We owe God a sin debt that we can never, ever repay. Every one of us. Thankfully, God doesn't make us die trying to repay Him. God instead sent His Son Jesus to live righteously for us and to pay the debt for us on the cross. So that Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' good works could be credited to our account. We have none. He has them all. And God credits them all to our account. All we have to do is believe God for it. Trust that He really wants to declare us righteous as a gift. And the question I will ask you this morning is, have you really come to that realization? Have you stopped trying to do the impossible, namely earning God's righteousness earning a right standing with God, and started simply believing that Jesus, through His sinless life and His sacrificial death and His resurrection, earned it for you. And all you have to do is believe God for it. And it will be credited to your account. And in God's accounting records, you will be just as paid up, just as righteous as Jesus is who never sinned say that again when we trust in Jesus God counts us as just as paid up just as righteous as his own son who never sinned that's amazing that's what Abram received he believed in the Lord and it was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness so now as we turn our attention back to him we're going to find that this man of faith he was a man of faith but even in his faith He was sometimes frail. He is, again, in verses 7 through 16, not all that different from us. Verse 7 He, God, said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he, God, said to him, Bring me a three year old heifer, and a three year old female goat, and a three year old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now in verse 6, Abram triumphantly believed God's promise for a son, right? But in verse 7, he wavered when God promised to give him all the land that's modern day Palestine. It was the same God who made both promises, the promises of a son and the promise of land. So it wasn't God who had changed in between verses 6, 7, and 8. It was Abram who had changed. His faith had already begun to weaken. And like so many people since then, Abram asked God for a sign. How will I know that you're really going to do what you just told me you're going to do, God? How will I know that you're really telling me the truth? And we might just for a moment forget how weak our faith sometimes is. And we might be tempted to criticize Abram. I can't believe Abram would ask God for a sign. He shouldn't ask God for a sign. He should have just taken God at His Word. What's wrong with you, Abram? But before you do that, I want you to notice the way God responded to him. God didn't grab Abram by the ear and give him a lecture, did He? Oh, again, He was patient. And He granted Abram's request. He gave Abram instructions to prepare this sacrifice that would reaffirm his promises and that would function as the sign Abram asked for. God gave him what he asked. He didn't have to, but he was merciful and he was compassionate. God remembers our frames. He knows that we are dust. He knows that we don't trust him like we should. It's important to note, though, that Abram, though his faith weakened, didn't lose his faith altogether. That's important. Abram at least trusted God enough to obey his instructions and prepare this sacrifice in verses 9 and 10. So he didn't lose his faith altogether. At least he believed God enough to do what God said. But it is clear that his faith had weakened in between verse 6 and verse 8. And yet, God didn't take away his righteousness that he had just credited to him in verse 6. When Abram questioned God in verse 8, God didn't turn around and say, You know what, Abram? You really don't believe me. You're not righteous anymore. God didn't do that to Abram. And He didn't cancel the promises He'd made to him about his son and his offspring. And that's important as well this morning, because it's a reminder for us that God doesn't require us to have superhuman, mountain-sized faith. God knows our frame. God remembers that we're dust. God knows that we don't trust Him like we could and that our faith is going to sometimes waver. And therefore, He accepts and responds to even faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus says. God's not looking for people who have superhuman faith. He's just looking for people who have human faith in a superhuman God. That's important. Because none of us in this room, I don't think, would raise our hands and say we are the pinnacle of the example of faith. Even though Abram's faith wavered, he didn't lose his relationship with God, and neither will you, if you have faith even the size of a mustard seed or a grain of salt. That's good news for those of us with wavering faith. But Let's also understand that Though the smallness of Abram's faith did not change his eternal standing with God, it did come with some difficult earthly ramifications. Difficult things happened to Abram because he didn't believe God like he should have. Abram asked for a sign because his faith was small, and God gave him the sign in verses 12 through 16. The sign was God appearing to him in this dream and saying, Abram, your descendants will indeed inhabit the land of Canaan. But with that reassurance from God came, as we read, a terrifying vision. Or as we're going to read in just a moment. A terrifying vision. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That's a tough thing for Abram to hear, isn't it? Abram must have been glad that he himself wasn't going to suffer that. But can you imagine the kind of nightmares that he may have had after this about his children? God didn't tell him when it was going to happen. Can you imagine what he must have thought about for his son Ishmael and later his son Isaac? What he must have wondered might happen to them? All because he asked for a sign. Abram didn't have to ask for the information that he asked for, but he did, because his faith was weak. That's a warning to us all this morning, to take God at His word the first time around. Our questionings and our doubts and our difficulties aren't going to take away our relationship with God, but our quest for more knowledge than God gives us, our quest for signs, sometimes may leave us with knowledge that we wish had been left untouched. It's often true, as Solomon would write in Ecclesiastes 118, that increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Better, far better, is to take God's Word and believe His promise the first time around. And by way of helping you do that, by way of helping you believe God's promises the first time around, let me just walk back through these verses uh, one more time before we move on and point out to you How God always does what He says He will do. He says in verse 13 that the children of Abram would be oppressed 400 years. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, we find out that they were oppressed 400 years. He says in verse 14 that He would judge those who oppressed them. And in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, we can read about that as God judged Egypt with. Ten deadly plagues and eventually drown their armies in the Red Sea. In verse 14, he also says, Abram, though your children will be oppressed, they're going to come out with many possessions. And in Exodus 12:35 and 36, we can read how the Israelites, almost by accident, were able to plunder the Egyptians for mounds and mounds of silver and gold as they went out of the land. Just after the plagues. And in verse 15, God promised that Abram would live to a good old age. And in Genesis 25, verse 8, we find those words repeated almost verbatim to describe Abram at the end of his life. I tell you, God always does what he says he will do. And we can take his words to the bank. Now... As Abram waited for God's sign uh, in verses 7 through 16, he fell asleep. And God appeared to him in this terrible vision. But God yet hadn't done anything with these animals that Abram had prepared for sacrifice. So in verses 17 through 21, we find out what God did, as apparently Abram awoke to see God himself passing in the midst of the pieces. Let's read those verses 17 through 21. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, and from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephaim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Jergeshite in the Jebusite. Verse 17 is a strange verse. What's going on here with this, this smoking oven and flaming torch? Well, apparently what was going on didn't appear quite as strange to Abram as it does to us. The reason I, I surmise that is because in the custom of the ancient Near East, uh, two parties who were entering into a covenant together would sometimes seal the covenant by setting up a sacrifice like Abram did and then having both parties walk in between the two pieces kind of as a seal to their covenant. It must have been for them something that had the same kind of legal and moral significance as when we sign our names at the bottom of a contract. That's what's happening here. And so Abram probably understood that that's what's happening. God was entering into a covenant with him. God was making ceremonially a ceremonially official through this sacrifice the promises that he'd been making to Abram for several chapters. And the the smoking oven and the flaming torch are a symbol of God's presence going through. Just like the burning bush in Exodus was a symbol of God's presence. So this oven and this torch were a symbol of God's presence walking in the midst of the pieces. But that's what's interesting about this ceremony. Because I mentioned to you that in the ancient custom, both parties would walk through the midst of the pieces when they made a covenant together. And here, in verse 17, only God is seen as going through the midst of the pieces. Only God is ratifying the covenant. And the question is, why? Why is only God going through the midst? I thought both parties were supposed to. Well, the reason is because only God needed to go through the midst. Only God needed to ratify the covenant. Because God wasn't asking Abram to make any promises to him. God was making a one-sided, unconditional promise to Abram. And God was not going to back away from that promise even when Abram failed miserably to walk in his ways. God was making the covenant regardless of Abram's disobedience. It's a wonderful foreshadowing of the covenant God's made with us, isn't it? It's a wonderful foreshadowing of what God has done for us in Jesus. It's a one-sided thing. We didn't have to go to the cross with Jesus. We don't have to promise perfect obedience with Jesus to Jesus. Jesus went to the cross alone, ratifying alone the covenant which God was making with mankind. And once we have met the lone condition of believing him for it, then the covenant is sealed no matter how miserable we have been before and how miserable we're going to be at times afterward. That's good news. God is not waiting for us to get up and walk through the midst of the pieces. God's not waiting for us to do something to fulfill our end of the bargain. Jesus has paid it all. And God's covenant of grace with us is a one-sided covenant and it is sealed. God will not go back on it. Thank God for that. Because none of us this morning wants to bank our eternity even on how we've lived in faithfulness the last week. Even the last week all of us have broken promises to God. Broken commandments of God. We don't want to base God's faithfulness to us on our faithfulness to Him. So thank God for a one-sided covenant. We don't want to bank on our own righteousness. And neither did Abram, as we're going to see now graphically in chapter 16. Chapter 16 is where Abram's life begins really to turn into a soap opera. So pay close attention to verses 1-6. through Because I'll tell you, the same sins and the same repercussions that ripped through Abram's family like a tornado are crouching at your door as well. Sin desires to have us, but we must master it. Unlike Abram and his wife, Sarai, in these verses. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, now, behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Abram and his wife had God's promise for a son. Now, God didn't specifically say to Abram, you're going to have a son through Sarai. He just said you're going to have a son. But men who are married, let's think that out. If God came to you and said, you're going to have a son, you know what I would think? I would think, oh, Toby's going to have a son too. This is great. It was real clear that God's promise to Abram for a son was not going to be for Abram to go out and find a surrogate mother, but that God was going to bless Abram and his wife. So Abram and Sarai both had a promise from God. They had a promise together that God would give them a son. And initially, Abram at least believed. But some time had passed and there was still no son. And Abram and Sarai weren't getting any younger. And so Sarai began to get antsy So antsy, in fact, that she started, as one commentator put it, I think perfectly, she started doing God's thinking for him. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. But Sarai was desperate, and so she devised a plan. Maybe Hagar, our slave girl, our maid, maybe she could act as a surrogate mother. After all, Sarai must have thought, she's just a slave. And I'll be the one paying for this kid to be raised anyway. So why not just give her to Abram, get the baby, and then I'll be happy. Abram will be happy, and God will be happy too. I want you just to look at this sorry old woman. First of all, she was bitter, muttering to herself, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Whining. She was callous, treating her slave girl as something less than human. She's just a slave. We'll use her to get what we want. And worst of all, in her weird and warped world, Sarai fancied herself in these moments wiser than God. God who had given her a promise. God who had shown that he was faithful to his promises. But he wasn't coming through in her mind, and so she began to come up with a better plan. And when her little plan worked, she discovered that she wasn't as wise as she thought she had been. God let Abram and Sarai reap exactly what they had sown. Because once Hagar conceived, she turned against Sarai. And you can imagine why she would. Sarai had used her. Sarai had abused her. Sarai was planning in nine months to take her child away from her. No wonder she turned against her. So when Hagar conceived, she turned against Sarai. And when she turned against Sarai, Sarai turned on Abram and started saying, This is all your fault. And before you're tempted to feel sorry for Abram, remember he willingly went along with the plan. It says, Abram, listened to the voice of Sarai. He didn't protest with her. Maybe this wasn't his plan, but he went right along with it. So don't feel sorry for Abram. And remember that his actions in chapter 12, selling his own wife off as a sex slave, hadn't exactly endeared her to him either. He got himself into this mess. And then what did he do about it when it blew up in his face? Did he stand up and take control of his family? No. Did he get on his knees and plead for God, plead with God for help? No. Abram simply shrugged the whole thing off in verse 6 and gave Sarai permission to take out her frustrations on Hagar. Do whatever is right in your own eyes. And the whole thing for Abram turned into a royal mess. And it's a mess that continues this to this very day as the Israeli descendants of Isaac and the Arabic descendants of Ishmael continue to war and fight. Isn't that amazing? All because Sarai the wise started doing God's thinking for him and Abram the wimp listened to the voice of his wife and didn't have control over his family. What a mess these people got into and what a mess we get ourselves into when we ignore the clear promises and instructions of God and start doing what seems right in our own eyes. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death, Proverbs 14 says. How many of us in this room even are living with pain and difficulty and heartache because somewhere along the line, at some point in our life, We thought for just a moment that we were wiser than God. God's word to us was clear enough, but because of the heat of the moment or because of the influence of our friends or because of our own lack of patience, we leapt into an incredibly foolish decision, one that we are, some of us, paying for even to this day. For some of us, one or two hours of foolishness will mean a lifetime of difficulty and pain. Maybe you never thought of it that way, but today you're realizing for the first time that so much of the tangled web that is your life on June 18, 2006 dates back to that night or that summer or that decision or that relationship or that season in my life when I really did some stupid things. If that's where you are this morning, if that is dawning on you for the first time this morning, God has given you a wonderful opportunity to confess that night or that decision or that relationship and to get forgiveness for it and to get a fresh start. All the consequences won't go away, but there will be a new hope and a fresh start if you confess your sins. And I also know that there are others in this room who are probably on the very cusp of making one of these kinds of foolish decisions. Some of you might be thinking about doing things with your body or doing things with your money, or doing things in regard to some relationship that would feel quite nice for the moment, but that you will regret for a lifetime. I'll read you a poem by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. This is the debt I pay just for one riotous day, years of regret and grief, sorrow without relief. Slight was the thing I bought, small was the debt I thought, Poor was the loan at best, but oh God, the interest. One riotous day can result in years of sinful interest. The regret and grief that we accumulate because we fancy ourselves wiser than God is sometimes staggering. So if you're on the cusp of one of those decisions this morning, hear that warning. Learn the lesson of Sarai and Abram before it's too late before we conclude, some of you may be wondering, what happened to to Hagar? Sadly, Sarai's treatment of her became so cruel that she had to flee into the desert. And that's where we find her in verses 7 through 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Shur is on the way to Egypt. She was running home. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, return it to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Roy. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Hagar's story is another beautiful picture of God's compassion. In this case, compassion toward the beaten down and the outcast and the poor. And Hagar, who was the slave girl turned sex slave turned runaway, was all three. In the gutter, God met her and he spoke to her with tender and hope-giving words. He spoke to her the same way that Jesus spoke to the woman who was caught in adultery, with tender and hope giving words. And he spoke to her the same way the father of the prodigal son spoke to him when he came home in his filthy rags, with tender and hope giving words. He spoke to him, to her, the same way that I think God is speaking to every sinner in this room this morning. If we could see ourselves from heaven's vantage point, we would all understand just how much uh, ragamuffins we really are. Bruised and broken by our own sins and by the sins of others against us. God finds us that way. And in His mercy this morning, He speaks to us. In His mercy, He sent His Son to redeem us from the futile way of life handed down by our forefathers. He's the God, as Hagar found out, who sees. He knows our frames. He knows what we need and he comes to us in our greatest need. And when he does, he speaks tenderly and mercifully. And sometimes he gives us difficult instructions. Let's not overlook that. Sometimes he gives us instructions like, Hagar, I want you to return to your mistress and submit yourself to her. Or instructions like Jesus gave to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more. God expects us when He gives us those instructions to obey, like Hagar, not like Sarai. Have you ever said God, walking with God would be easy? And Hagar's a perfect example of that. Can you imagine how difficult it was for her to go back to Sarai, that old battle axe you might have called her if she lived in our culture? Can you imagine what it was like for her to return to being a slave? None of us can imagine what it's like to be a slave. But if you can just get a glimpse of it, imagine being one, being set free, and then God telling you, I want you to go back. These were hard instructions. They weren't any less difficult than the instructions God gave Sarai and Abram to wait well into their 70s and then well into their 80s and then well into Abram's 90s, still without a child. She had just as difficult a task, if not more difficult. And unlike Sarai and Abram, Hagar obeyed. She's an example to us all because she obeyed and because she waited in faith for God to fulfill his promise. And as we close the chapter and close our time together this morning, I want you to notice that at the end of chapter 16, Abram's still waiting too. It would be 13 more years before Abram would have a son by his wife, Sarai. But between chapters 16 and 17, Abram apparently renewed his faith in God and continued to patiently wait. Apparently, Abram, somewhere between chapters 16 and 17, learned his lesson. He learned that being wiser than God came with great and terrible consequences. He learned that even when he was faithless, God was going to remain faithful to him because God wouldn't deny himself. And he learned that what God wanted most from him was his trust, not his ingenuity. Maybe that's the most important this morning. What God wants most from us is our trust, not our bright ideas. Abram learned those things. And I just wonder, urge you to ponder what God has been teaching you this morning. What does God want you to learn this morning? Has God pricked your conscience about some sin today? Maybe He has gently poured oil into some open wound in your life today. Maybe He's speaking a word of promise to you today like He did to Abram. Maybe He's issuing a word of warning to you. Maybe some of you He's speaking to you and helping you see that you really are a sinner who's in desperate need of a Savior. But I believe that God is speaking today and that He wants us to learn today. So we need to learn from Abram. Teetering though he was, Abram in the end held on to his faith. And sinner though he was, Abram believed what God was telling him. And the question that we close with is, do we believe what God is telling us today? And what are we going to do with it? Father, I pray that we would believe your word to us today, whether it's a word of promise or a word of compassion or a word of rebuke or a word of invitation to your son, Jesus, that we would believe what you say, that we would take you at your word the first time around. Now that we wouldn't ask for any more signs than what you've said to us, and that we wouldn't be wiser than you, that we would just take you at your word this morning and trust whatever it is You're telling us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me invite you now to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. Our passage for this morning will be Genesis chapters 15 and 16. And I want you to know up front that Abram's story this morning is going to come at us like an episode from Days of Our Lives. One minute, we're going to find Abram, a triumphant man of God, believing in the Lord and having it credited to him as righteousness, believing in the Lord for this miracle child that would come. And then after the commercial break, so to speak, between chapters 15 and 16, we're going to find Abram fathering an illegitimate child, squabbling with his wife and in a whole heap of trouble. In this story...